introduction. Welcome everyone to uh, The Torch of Progress. This is our speaker series uh, for the, our online summer program called Progress Studies for Young Scholars. Uh, this is a, a program aimed at high school students in the uh, history of technology. And um, we are running new classes uh, starting every couple of weeks. So if you are uh, interested in this topic, um, please go ahead, check out our website at progressstudies.school and uh, sign up. We are also putting together uh, a, a class aimed at older students and adults. So if you're not a teen, not in high school, but you're still interested in this material, also go ahead and sign up and um, we'll, we're, we, are, we are planning something for you. Before we dive into today's event, let me just tell you about a couple of great events we have coming up. We're doing these um, every week. Uh, the next several events are all on uh, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Um, next week, July 15th, we have a biotech founder, Noor uh, Siddiqui, who is uh, the founder of Orchid Bioscience. Uh, the week after that, July 22nd, we have uh, Dr. Anton Howes, uh, author of the book uh, Arts and Minds, a uh, official history of the RSA that just came out. Uh, that's the Royal Society for Arts. And then uh, the week after that, July 29th, we will have Danica Rainey, who is the president of the Asteroid Institute, to give an interesting talk about um, asteroids and uh, protecting the Earth from asteroid impacts. Um, and we have a number of others lined up after that. Please check out our website, progressstudies.school, to see the, uh, the schedule. Um, my name is Jason Crawford. I am the author of The Roots of Progress, where I write about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. And I'm the creator of uh, the course, Progress Studies for Young Scholars. And our guest today uh, here to give us a talk is Dr. Joel McKeer, uh, very well known in uh, economic history, the author of many books, including um, I think the most recent one is uh, A Culture of Growth which was a, a deep inspiration to me in starting uh, on, on my study of, of human progress. Um, uh, some of his other well-known books include The Gifts of Athena and The Lever of Riches, and he's written many others besides as well as, of course, many, many articles. Um, and he's here to uh, give us a talk that he prepared specially for this. So let's give a warm welcome and, and thank you to Dr. Mokir. Thank you. I'm going to add, you know, we'll go to... There we go. All right. Can everybody see this now? Yes, it looks great. Good, 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 good. All right. Here, so here we go. Uh, so this talk is called uh, Attitudes, Aptitudes, and the Emergence of the Modern Economy. And I, you know, over the last couple of weeks, I actually changed my mind about the introduction. So I'm going to change it a little bit. And I'm going to raise a naive question that's very much inspired by the sort of news of the last uh, few weeks. You know, there is a wave of protests against racial injustice and discrimination, and there's the Black Lives Matters movement. And so thinking about this, I want to pose a really silly and naive question that I don't think anybody else has actually posed. And that is, why really isn't it the other way around? You know, why don't we ever see uh, black people who had white slaves, black people who oppressed white pe people, discriminated against them, and so on and so forth. Um, and actually, that the, the answer to that isn't obvious. I mean, there's one thing, there's not a smidgen of evidence that in any meaningful way, whites are in, in biologically different from brown and black people in a way that gave Europe a political and military advantage. Um, but the facts that 
everybody recognizes that over the past, past say, let's say 400, maybe even 500 years, Europeans have dominated and subjugated and enslaved and exploited the rest of humanity in a multiple way. And um, you wonder why. And this is not just an American problem, it's a global problem. You, you look, just look at other hemisphere nations, you look at, say, the way Afro-Brazilians or Afro-Colombians have been treated by, uh, by whites in those countries. And, you know, it's different, but it's still highly asymmetrical. And even in Europe, you know, where black slavery, of course, was never introduced on any large scale, we still observe the same thing. You know, you look at France and, and the UK and other countries, and people of African and Asian descent are discriminated against in a variety of ways, disadvantaged by white people, all the way from mortgage lenders to, you know, uh, police brutality. Just, you know, to keep my terms straight, okay, this isn't quite the same as racism as such, although it's obviously there's a relation. You know, racism just means disliking others who, who don't look or sound like you. Uh, I'm talking about racism coupled to inequality and asymmetry. Um, that is to say, there's one group um, that's dominant and, and one group that's not, and the dominant group is, is, is exploiting in some ways the other group. So what's the source of this um, inequality? And so I would say that if it's not biology, and if it's not geography, then it must be history. Somehow, over time, at some point, uh, white people, that is to say Europeans, acquired some mysterious advantage over the rest of the world, brown, what we call brown and black people, that allowed this inequality to emerge. So it created modern imperialism and the gaps between the incomes of white as opposed to non-white people, which are still, of course, quite, quite large. Now, one point that's really critical is to emphasize that it wasn't always so. If you go back a thousand years, you know, you go to the year 1000 AD, and you compare Europe with the rest of the world, Europe, you know, was an ignorant, impoverished, violent backwater um, in which the, you know, literacy rates were, illiteracy rates were probably 99%. Whereas if you look at the world of Islam, or you look at the world of China during the so-called Song Dynasty, these were, by comparison, sophisticated and literate societies that made major advances in a variety of fields, such as medicine, mathematics, engineering, philosophy, and on and on and on. And so clearly there's, this is nothing geographical or, or, or biological because, you know, obviously there's been some kind of great reversal here. By the 18th century, however, it's there. And so here's a quote from a novel by a very famous British writer called Dr. Johnson, as he's known, Samuel Johnson. And, and there's some kind of fictional conversation there, which is uh, kind of silly, actually, but here's a quote that isn't. And so, a, so this, this fictional Abyssinian prince asked his philosopher friend in 1759, so it's a smack in the middle of the 18th century, and he says, by what means are the Europeans thus powerful, or why, since they can so easily visit Asia and Africa for trade or conquest, cannot the Asiatics, uh, 18th century word, Asiatic, and Africans invade their coasts, plant colonies in their park? The same winds that carry them back would bring us thither. The answer that was provided was, they are more powerful than we, sir, because they are wiser 
Knowledge will always predominate over ignorance. But why their knowledge is more than ours, I know not. Emphasis added. So I make this way, but that's the critical kind of. So the answer is that, you know, not that they were smarter, but that they knew more, which is, of course, not at all the same thing. And so the answer that Prince Vasilis can't provide is something that I will suggest in this talk. And I will make this. Um, Summary, I'll summarize this by calling this attitudes and aptitudes. And so at some point in the centuries before Dr. Johnson was writing, Europeans developed both the attitudes and the aptitudes that drove them to acquire the kind of knowledge that gave them a, an advantage in certain capabilities that ended in white domination and eventually led to slavery, colonialism, and a huge gap in living standards. Uh, it's not, of course, true that Europeans were in some, in, in some ways better educated or more literate. Um, other civilizations arguably were more so, and the literacy rates in China probably were still higher uh, than in Europe um, in, in, you know, at, in, in about 1500. Uh, that's not quite what's going on. Um, but what is really going on is what I would call culture. Okay, And now culture is a word that's heavily overused and abused in social sciences and the humanities. I'm going to mean something quite specific, which is sort of uh, beliefs, preference, and values. And what I'm going to argue, what I argue in that book, is that between 1450 and 1700, roughly speaking, okay, there were improvements taking place in the European cultural environment in which the idea of progress um, and the willingness to challenge and control nature to improve the human condition slowly became part of the reigning culture. Um, now, that seems kind of obvious to us, maybe even sort of, um, trivial, but in 1450, it wasn't. Uh, moreover, Europe also created an institutional environment of greater freedom of expression, a greater tolerance for heterodoxy, and above all, the kind of institutions and organizations that provide incentive for people to create um, new ideas, that is to say, intellectual innovation. So I'm going to single out three important attitudes um, that I think really counted. Now, I could think of more, so I did think of this as a very partial list. One of those is skepticism. And so during the Renaissance, say 1450, um, Europeans were, had rediscovered much of the learning of ancient Greece and Rome. You know. um, and so they obviously realized that there was a lot of wisdom and, oops, sorry, sorry about that. Shh. That's my dog. Uh, really? Good. Sorry. <laughs> uh, they realized there was a lot of wisdom and learning there, but then they realized there was a lot of error as well. And so, what little medieval Europe had of these uh, of classical knowledge, including some of these, these great philosophers and scientists, you know, think of people above all Aristotle, but also geographers like Ptolemy and, and biologists like Pliny and doctors like Galen, that they thought that this was sacrosanct. You know, this is what you studied in university. But at some 
point, I would say, in the late 15th, early 16th century, uh, such uh, people start having their doubts. And more and more what you see is people criticizing uh, these kind of classical books. And um, by 1700, if you think of all the great names of, of, of scientific innovators, uh, that changed European science, you know, famous people like Copernicus and Galileo and Newton and so on. Um, they created a new science that in many ways contradicted what Europeans had inherited from the classical world. And, uh, you know, basically they start dismissing the classical canon with contempt. That included, by the way, just a, a side of mine, that included even the Bible. You know, the Bible had always been considered to be sacrosanct. And you know, and at this period, you see people actually beginning with sort of biblical criticism, essentially realizing that the Bible was written by people and started to point out contradictions, inconsistency, blah, blah, blah. So this kind of skepticism is all over the map. The second thing is what I call openness. Uh, from early times on, and it actually starts already in the Middle Ages, uh, Europeans were willing to learn from other civilizations, even if they didn't like those other civilizations, like Islam, and where they went to war with them repeatedly. And they readily adopted, or if you want, stole their ideas, and then went on to improve them and make them work better. So after 1500, after Columbus, when they start traveling around the world, they adopt and learn how to make, say, Indian cottons and Chinese silks and porcelain. And they adopted many crops from the Western Hemisphere. Hang on, wait, I'm going to put this down. Hey, Lily. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. Yeah, you All right. <laughs> She's still a puppy. Um, so they travel around the world and they, they see, you know, Chinese and Indian artisans making things and they say, hey, you know, can we do this too? And they can and they do and in the end they make things better. And so what, when you ask, why did Europeans start touring around the world? Um, so they, you know, their objective was quite explicitly, you know, to learn and then copy and adopt new forms of technology and medicine and mathematics. So this is known as the Columbian exchange, which of course is, is not quite accurate because a lot of the exchange was happening with Asia. And so this is one of the things that Europeans do and they start adopting all these new crops, you know, like potatoes uh, and coffee that they discover elsewhere in the world. Now they did this, you know, in addition to the other things that they were doing, which is converting, you know, non Europeans to Christianity, you know, steal their gold and silver, you know, confiscate their land, enslave them if they could, uh, to grow the kind of crops that the Europeans desire. But they, but their willingness to adopt new technology and new knowledge from other civilizations is quite striking. And this is you know, something quite uniquely European. The Chinese and even less so the Japanese and, 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 and Islam were all very reluctant to adopt European ideas, even so, you know, they obviously became available as the Europeans showed up. So, you know, the printing press didn't really make it into the Middle East until the middle of the 18th century, 300 years uh, after the Europeans had it. And there's lots of evidence that the Chinese and the Japanese were very reluctant until fairly recently adopt European technology. The third thing is what I call um, 
neophilia. That is to say, uh, developing a taste for things that are new and unfamiliar. And as a result, to reward intellectual innovators. So if you come up with a new idea that catches on, um, you will revert, reward it. And some of these people actually became, by the standards of the time, celebs. Now, none more so than you know the great Isaac Newton, who was kind of an idol in his time, and you know his students were sitting at his feet and listening to the great master, and a hundred thousand people showed up in 1727 for his funeral. I mean, he was he wasn't really a superstar, but there are lots of other superstars like that, uh, um, and these were all people who had come up with um, new ideas and um, became quite famous, and 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 and. Um, Many of these leading scientists, or as they're called natural philosophers, they weren't called scientists, uh, they, they sort of became, as I said, celebrities, and they, as a result, landed posh and comfortable patronage positions as Galileo did and, and Leibniz and, 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 and many others. And so the result, of course, is that if you incentivize these things right, a lot of radical new ideas that were, were proposed between 1500 and 1750, many of these were developed by the Europeans themselves, some of them, as I said, were adopted from elsewhere, and people, the Europeans, didn't mind at all. In fact, they they quite proudly named their new products after the place where they uh, uh, took them from. So we still use the word Chinaware for porcelain, which basically indicates that yeah, we got this from China, you know, or, or you know, calicos or you know, turkeys. I mean, you can can go on like that. Now, obviously, not all the ideas that they developed, and. Um, still were good ideas. A lot of these ideas were bogus, particularly in medicine, but in other areas as well. Some of them were mistaken. But wherever possible, you know, they were put to good use. And if people want some examples, I, I, I will provide them in, in the Q&A uh, section. Okay, so I'm now going to talk about attitudes. Now let me say something about aptitudes. Okay, so as I said, European produced a lot of new ideas, but uh, you know, the problem was that even if these were in principle sound, they often couldn't be realized. Okay, so the best example that I have of that is Leonardo. So Leonardo, as I think you may have seen it, and if you went to a, some kind of museum in Italy or looked at some books. So he was a technological genius who invented literally hundreds of, 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 of machines, many of whom were actually quite sound. And so he drew these, and there is a picture of a, if you look here carefully on, on the, at the bottom, um, you'll see a sort of a, a, a drawing of something that, that would work like a helicopter. This, of course, it would be a flying machine, but there are things like pumps and, you know, kind of hoisting machines and you name it. Now, of these machinery, none was ever built in his lifetime or, in fact, after it. Um, and it's not alone, it's not uh, Leonardo alone. Here are two inventions that actually work. But they couldn't really be commercially realized or scaled up. So on the left, you see a submarine, you know, this little brown thing in the water with the arrow uh, uh, sticking out. Uh, that's, that's a submarine. That's a submarine built in 1620 in London by a Dutchman called Cornelius de Rebel. Um, and it worked, but you know, it was just, just this model work, but nobody could ever produce a lot of them because they were too expensive or they didn't, you know, they didn't work in some way. On the right, you have one of the first mechanical calculators ever built. This was built by a Frenchman called Blaise Pascal. You see where it looks. This is a reconstruction. This is not the original. But you, get, but, 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 you know, but neither submarines nor, you know, um, mechanical calculators 
came into widespread use for hundreds of years because they just couldn't be uh, uh, scaled up and produced uh, effectively. Um, and the answer is quite obvious. It's workmanship and materials. People just couldn't make these things because they didn't have the right materials and they didn't have the right aptitude. Okay, So my thinking about this is that this kind of aptitude is a form of knowledge that's what we call complementary to the inventions. This is the term economists use and basically says that inventions need artisans to build them, but artisans need new ideas by inventors. And so that's the notion of they make each, each other stronger, which is fundamentally then the concept of, of complementarity as economists use it. And this was emerging in this time, but at the time of Leonardo or even the time of, of Drebel and Pascal, you know, it wasn't quite, it wasn't quite there. Over time, however, Europe is acquiring an advantage in aptitude as well. And so you can actually see this by looking at a variety of different uh, uh, techniques. So if you start, say, let's, let's go to the year 1400, just before the great voyages. Okay. And uh, I would say that most people would agree that compared to Europe, as late as 1400, the Chinese still had superior technological capabilities in a whole variety of, of um, sectors, shipbuilding, navigation, uh, iron making, hydraulics, and you know, textiles, but you know, no, 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 no. But you, you look carefully, you see the Europeans are starting to catch up. Now, 200 years later, when the first Jesuits arrive in China and contact is established between Europe and China, and it's really just the Jesuits who are allowed into China, and of course no Chinese uh, show up in Europe. But by the late 16, 17th century, I'm sorry, sorry, 16th century, 1582, the Jesuits arrive in China, trying to convert the Chinese, of course, that's their main purpose. But they, you know, they're, they're pretty smart guys, and they notice how backward China is in many areas. So there's an Italian Jesuit called Matteo Ricci, um, who points out that the Chinese used to have these skills in things that they were very good at, clock making and shipbuilding especially, but now the Europeans are actually better and they have to teach them. The same was true for astronomy, you know, measuring time and on and on. So it's still probably true that by, say, 15, 15, 16th century, um, Asia still has a highly skilled class of artisans who produce many of the goods that Europeans uh, wanted. Things like like Chinese porcelain or Indian cottons and things like that, um, um, but that advantage is slowly disappearing. By 1700, European artisans are quickly improving, is especially true in Britain, which is clearly the leading uh, uh, nation in terms of you know the quality of its artisans. But it's not just Britain, and so I brought you these two two pictures to show you that even on the continent. Uh, this, 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 this capability had improved um, a great deal. So on the, on the left, you see this duck. Now, this is a, a mechanical duck that actually can walk and quack and actually desiccate, uh, believe it or not. It was built as a toy for the rich and, and, and the bored by, by a man called Jacques de Vaucanson um, in about 1730. On the right, you see a very different skill of violin making. This is actually a picture in the Violin Museum in Cremona, Italy. And uh, you know, these, these, these 
violent. You know, they were so good. We still can't make them better than what these masters. So this is a set of skills that is emerging. And I would say by 1700, you see the Europeans developing this skill at an ever faster rate. And so what I would argue, and this sort of summarizes my view on this, is that the growth in the quality of workmanship and materials in the preceding century helps explain the timing and location of the Industrial Revolution, first in England and then, of course, in France, in Germany and, and other continental countries. Uh, and so you may well ask, as I do ask my students, you know, why is it that when you look at Leonardo's inventions, you know, in the late 15th, early 16th century, you ask yourself, why did they become never become a reality? Whereas when James Watt, the great engineer, develops a you know, better and more efficient steam engine, why did he succeed? And so I, I wrote a little poem about this, which is the only poem you'll ever hear from me, okay? But this is a poem I'm very proud of, okay? And this is the poem. The poem says, the difference between Leonardo and Watt was that Watt had Wilkinson and Leonardo this did not. Now, this is not going to get me the Nobel Prize in, in literature, I'm afraid, but it does make a point that's really worth making. And that this is, uh, um, I'm not sure this thing, this thing isn't blocking it, but this is a, a, a man called John Wilkinson. Um, and Wilkinson was an, you know, he looks in his Sunday clothes here, but he was actually essentially an iron founder. So he obviously uh, um, was a guy good with his hands. And he developed a machine that could bore cylinders at a very high level of accuracy. And of course, you can build a steam engine. That's what you need because the, you know, the piston goes inside a cylinder. And if the, if the fit isn't quite snug, you're not going to get you know, the steam engine to do the work it's supposed to do. And so it wasn't enough for Watt and other people to think of a steam engine. You needed guys to build it. The, the picture you're seeing here is a guy who could build it. And without him, Watt would not have become famous and we would not have had steam power. Now it's not just him, of course, it's people, him, it's people, him, it's him, sorry. It's him and people like him. But they were there in Britain, in the 18th century and they were not there in the 16th century so if you had invented a steam engine in the 16th century which is not likely and you wouldn't have built it anyway and so what dr johnson to come back for him was talking about is to some extent mechanical skills but there's more to it than that and that's something i i, I do want to point out and that is that you know if you look at knowledge, basically there's sort of two kinds of knowledge. There's people who make things, or the French call them fabricants, you know, these are artisans, industrialists, you know, if you want farmers. And then there's people who know things, scientists, natural philosophers, mathematicians. Um, and these are, you know, roughly speaking, separate groups. But what is really important is that these groups talk to each other and um, communicate. And this is something that was quite that was quite realized at the time. And uh, even Isaac Newton himself, who actually was probably more of an ivory tower scientist than, than most of his colleagues, basically said the geometry was devised not for the purpose of bare speculation, meaning sort of 
you know, theory, we'll call that, but for workaday use, by which we, he meant that its technique should be such that any practitioner should find them readily applicable in his measuring. So that's, you know, that's, I think, essentially the culture of the time. And I have called this um, the industrial enlightenment. So the enlightenment is a big, complicated uh, uh, cultural movement, but the industrial enlightenment is just a subsection of it, a slice of it, if you want, that actually thinking explicitly about progress and how to bring it about. And what is really striking is that in the 18th century, scientists were not really theorists. Uh, uh, they've really become very interested in practical problems, even the great uh, Isaac Newton, but others much more so. And these people have no, no qualms of getting some kind of dirt under their fingernails, okay? So they're not ivory tower people. Here is one example. I think of the great chemist Joseph Priestley, who discovered oxygen in 1774, uh, who di died in Pennsylvania, by the way, long story. But Priestley, who was a leading intellectual, and actually a serious political thinker, also invented two things we still use. One of them is sparkling water or carbonated water. And the other is the pencil eraser. Well, we don't use that very much anymore because nobody's writing with a pencil, but uh, certainly it was something that, 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 that was of considerable importance. You know, here's my, my favorite example of this, somebody you might not have heard of yet, also you should, but this is a typical, what I'd call an industrial enlightenment man. Okay, this is not an Englishman, it's a Frenchman, René Romeur. These are his dates, so you can sort of see living the first part of the 18th century, that is his picture. And now, so he's trained as a mathematician, and he's a, you know, he's a very big mucky mucky in French science. He's a lifelong member of the French Académie Royale, where all the sort of king, uh, elite scientists were members and so on. But he wrote, if you look at his writing, you know, he, he worries about iron and steel, and why steel is so much stronger than iron. He wonders about porcelain and glazing, which the Europeans were just adopting from China. He's worried about, you know, biology, egg incubation. Uh, he writes a book about entomology. He worries about temperature measurement. It used to be a, a Romeo uh, measure, you know, to compete with our Fahrenheit and European Celsius. I don't think anybody uses it anymore. You know, he, he suggested paper to be made from wood rather than rags. Now we can go on and on, but this is obviously a scientist who quite explicitly takes pride in solving practical problems. So in Britain, this is even stronger. And so you actually see scientists and industrialists seeking each other out and talking. The best example of this, this is very famous. This is famous. This is the Lunar Society of Birmingham. It's called the Lunar Society. Uh, and they call themselves actually as lunatics, which is when they don't mean crazy people. It's called Lunar Society because they met at full, full moon. You can see this full moon sort of in the background of the picture because that's when the streets of Birmingham uh, were passable at night because they didn't have street lighting yet. So at least that's the, that's, that's the story. So they're sitting around the table and some of these people are quite famous. Matthew Bolton, Erasmus Darwin, uh, father, the grandfather of the great Charles Darwin, uh, James Watt is there. So this is, this is the sort of really the, the, the top minds of British manufacturers and scientists. And they're talking about, you know, practical issues. How do you make this? How do you solve this problem? Um, and that's, I think, something very specific to Europe. So, and so 
basically just to sum up, you know, modern economic growth, which came out of the Industrial Revolution, was driven by this combination of attitude and aptitude. And uh, that really created the background of the Industrial Revolution and of our current wealth. So you have to understand, to come back to the sort of issue of progress, uh, it isn't enough to believe in progress in the sense that you think this can happen and this should happen. What these people did was they suggested a way in which it was to be achieved and to carry it out. So the net result is that we are richer than we have ever been. And here is one of the ironies of history. And you know, I mean, history can be so deeply ironic. Think about it. So Europeans got used this knowledge to get richer, but they also used this knowledge to subjugate and exploit people elsewhere in the world. You know, 19th century uh, colonialism. But it's still true that descendants of these subjugated people in Asia, in Africa, even in Latin America, are today far richer than their ancestors 200 years ago, thanks to this European knowledge. So it's sort of a good news, bad news kind of story. And uh, both of them are very much part of our story. So let me just sum up and ask a question that some of you may be wondering about, you know, what about the future and can progress continue? And so here is my thinking about it today. And that's essentially in our, in terms of our ability to develop new technology, the answer is almost surely yes. We keep inventing things. We keep breaking uh, new ground in a variety of scientific uh, areas that we never deem to be possible. You know, we now have computational this and computational that. You know, science and technology are progressing as fast as they ever have and maybe faster. I mean, there's some people that think it isn't, but um, I've had this debate with others and, and the answer is they're wrong. But what we should keep in mind, and I want you to all think about this hard and long, is it's not enough to come up with new knowledge. You also need the right institutional and political environment. You need things um, that we talk about uh, and that we take for granted until they, we don't have them. Things like liberty, you know, a civil society, relatively free markets, uh, human rights, the rule of law, uh, tolerance of others, in, um, a balance of power between the branches of government and social justice. And there, I mean, there is no guarantee that these will continue to progress. And in some areas of the world, there is serious concern that they may be regressing. Um, one of the great economic historians, um, of our time, now deceased, unfortunately, the great Douglas North, once said to me, and I knew him well, he said to me, Joel, you know, there's an interesting thing. In economic history, we talk about technological progress, but institutional change. And what this implies is that you know, technology progresses. It goes, it gets better and better over time, if, as long as we don't forget what we did before. Institutions change, they go up, they go down, they get better, they get worse. There's nothing that guarantees that they will get better. And there are long times in which, long periods in which they haven't, um, historically as well as our own time. And so 
I put this up there as the heading some institutional progress versus technological progress. And I put institutional progress in quotes because that's not at all guaranteed. And so I want to end up with a quote from Sigmund Freud, of all people, almost a century ago now, written in the book of The Future of an Illusion. And here's the quote. While mankind has made continual advances in its control over nature and may be expected to make still greater ones, it is not possible to establish with certainty that a similar advance has been made in the management of human affairs. And I would say that's probably the understatement of the century. And this is very understated, but clearly Freud agrees with North. That is to say, um, we will get better and better in our control over nature and over technology and science, but the management of human affairs, which is his way of calling and talking about institutions, uh, it's not at all clear that an advance will be made. And if the, you know, the discrepancy or the gap between the two keeps growing, that could be a source of great concern. Thank you. All right, thank you very much, Dr. Mokir. That was uh, that was great. And let's uh, we've got about twenty minutes now, a little over twenty minutes to um, take some questions. Uh, so for students in the course, go ahead and ask them in the Slack uh, for the course, and um, I'll, I'll try to give priority to your questions. Um, anybody else, go ahead and just type them into the chat here in Zoom, and um, I'm going to play moderator and sort of, uh, you know, pick out some questions and, um, yeah. Uh, I will, I'm going to go ahead and, and take moderator's privilege to ask a question or two of my own um, to start. Uh, I've been, uh, you know, it was about three uh, years ago or a little more that I read A Culture of Growth, and it really started me off thinking about a lot of these issues. Um, one question I've been, I've been dying to ask you ever since. Uh, Francis Bacon in the 1500s, you write about sort of, you know, had this idea that we could do science and it would lead to improvements in industry. And it seems to me that it took about 200 years for that to come true. How did a whole culture of people keep trying and hold on to this vision for 200 years you know, without having the Industrial Revolution yet? Why didn't they all give up, you know, like a hundred years in? What, what were they, how were they holding on to that vision? <laughs> it's, it, it's a very good question because the fact of the matter is that what, what, what Bacon was suggesting is that, you know, we should study nature and learn more about you know, how nature works, physics, chemistry, biology, and so forth, so we can apply it. And almost nothing that people tried actually worked. For a very long time, they, uh, you know, they, they tried this and they tried that. And, you know, most of the things didn't work. Whatever progress we see before 1700, really, it's very hard to see science having, you know, doing very much for, 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 for technology at all. Uh, and so this is, this is actually... A really cool question. Now you have to understand, however, that this is to some extent, uh, you know, a self-promoting piece of propaganda by scientists that to say you have a lot of people who uh, who do science. And I'm not so much thinking about Newton, who's kind of an, an oddball, but you look at people like Boyle and Hooke and a whole bunch of Frenchmen. Uh, these people basically say, look, we're scientists or we're, you know, natural philosophers and uh, we study medicine and we study botany and we study, and you should really subsidize us because this will be terribly useful. 
And well, it's not useful yet, but if you give us enough support, it will become useful. And so they basically, in some way, um, uh, convince authorities, and which are basically would be princes and patrons, uh, to keep subsidizing them, to keep sponsoring them, and so on and so forth. Uh, believing themselves, I think that this was true, but also realizing how hard the problem was. And it, it, but it's still know, amazing that it isn't really until a century after uh, Bacon uh, makes these points that uh, that people you start seeing little pieces of evidence that science can help here and there. Um, but remember, you know, of course, that that there is a whole sort of Baconian tradition in Britain. You know, the, the Royal Society, which is founded, um, you know, decades after Bacon's death, is really written in the uh, in the Baconian tradition. And there's this famous um, uh, uh, poem that was written by a contemporary poet, better than I am, but still not very good. Uh, who, who basically says that Bacon was like Moses, that he was allowed to behold the promised land, but not to enter it. <laughs> Always thought it was a little bit absurd, but, uh, but you know, there's some truth to that. You know, you had to wait a hundred years, but this is, you know, I think Europe is really ready for this. Uh, and um, people, you know, this is, this is what, uh, uh, once you start believing that progress is possible and that it's desirable. Uh, there's only two ways of, of bringing it about. The first is to expand useful knowledge so that you can have better technology. And the second thing is to try to improve institutions to get, you know, have a more reasonable government. And that's what we typically think that Enlightenment writers like Locke and Montesquieu and, and so on uh, were doing. But, um, but what you're saying is, is, is rather surprising. And what is even more surprising is that you don't see this anywhere else. You look at the Islamic world, you look at India, you look at China, you find nothing like this. In China, if you dig deep enough, you can find, you know, a few, because lots of really smart Chinese, and some of them actually say similar things, and they disappear without a trace. Whereas in Europe, bacon becomes certainly in the 18th century, Bacon becomes, you know, an, an idol. Uh, you know, you read books at the time, everybody is, 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 is quoted. Uh, um, Bacon, you know, they, they really buy into this stuff, lock, stock and barrel. But that it, that it did survive that long without giving, providing any fruit is, 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 is still rather surprising. Yeah. Um, I'll ask one more question, then I'll go to the questions from the audience. Uh, last week, we had on here for uh, for an interview, uh, Professor uh, Deirdre McCloskey, and uh, she uh, she really emphasizes, um, I would say, more of the uh, kind of uh, you know moral um, and uh, social you know aspects of honor and dignity, um, and how that led to uh, more liberty for uh, for I guess inventors and, and industrialists and so forth. You really emphasize the epistemological. Um, do you see these as um, complementary? Can these be combined? Um, I'm just, how do you uh, compare or... Yeah, yeah. I don't it? see any contradiction there. I mean, we're just basically you know, looking at the elephant and we're both looking at, at different parts of the elephant and we think it's the whole elephant. Um, so I know, I've known Deirdre for 50 years and, you know, reviewed her books and we were very, we're very close friends. And so we, we don't actually fight over this. We both agree 
that ideas matter, that what people believe is actually relevant to the outcomes. You know, it's a very sort of anti-materialist interpretation. You know, Marx would have said, oh, no, no, ideas don't matter. Ideas are a result of, 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 of deeper factors. And we think, you no, know, ideas are part of the deeper factors that determine outcomes. That's, I think, uh, um, what we both believe. Now, my emphasis, much more than Deirdre, is on invention, innovation, and technology. I, I really believe that what's driving, what's driving modern growth is novelty. It's, it's innovation. It's new ways of making things, and new products that, that weren't even in existence at all. And, um, and that, that, I think, is, is critical. I want to know where these things are coming from. Who creates them? Why do they create them? What would you, know, you have to know to build a machine that works better? Sometimes you have to know science. Sometimes you have to know math. Sometimes you just tinker around and it pops up. Uh, her view is much more about sort of what do people think about the ethics of um, enrichment and accumulation. You know? Is it socially okay to be a merchant or an artisan, or should everybody strive to be, uh, you know, a, 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 a leisurely country gentleman? Um, and so, how do people regard production and manufacturing and efficiency in society? And if you think that this is all uh, uh, idleness, and if it's, this is and, and this is really all sinful. You know, that's a very different world than a world in which these things become uh, acceptable. And what she's called sort of the bourgeois ethic. Bourgeois ethic is really about how acceptable uh, these things are. And I don't think there is a contradiction. I am basically focusing on the sort of most creative, most uh, able people in society. I'm a firm believer in... Uh, in the statement that economic growth is created by the top two, three percent of uh, the workforce, and that the other 97 percent are just being dragged along, so to speak. It's not everybody can be an inventor, not everybody can be a leading chemist or, you know, an innovative doctor or whatever. Okay, so it's it's a few people, and then the knowledge that they generate eventually sort of filters down to the rest of the population. That's how it happens. And so I focus on those top 3% or 2%, whatever they are, uh, of entrepreneurs, of industrialists, of inventors, of, of top engineers. I think she is looking at a much larger set of the population on how are these people being regarded. And I think that, that, that those are both valid points of view. So there's no contradiction there. The important thing is where we agree and where we agree above all is that ideas matter, that values matter, that attitudes matter, and that these attitudes are what we need to explain. It's much harder to explain attitudes than to explain relative prices. We know what, what determines prices. We know supply and demand. We know uh, economics. Where ideas come from, and more important, why do some ideas uh, get you know, accepted and become part of the, of the, of the dominant culture? That's much harder to understand and we're just really beginning to understand that you know there have been major cultural changes in our own time which people are still struggling to 
understand. You know, you look at the last 20, 30 years, I mean, since I came to the United States in 1970, there have been major changes in attitudes to all kinds of things, uh, and not in others. And uh, students ask me, so why is it that some cultural change things, uh, things change so rapidly and others don't? And, you know, we, we, we're still struggling with that. But it matters. That's the important thing. And economists ignore them at their peril. All right, we've got about 10 minutes left, so I'm gonna try to, let's get to some uh, questions from our students and audience. Um, Juan David asks uh, about countries that are um, maybe, these attitudes that you talked about, countries like the US um, that are going, are some of them going backwards and towards of attitudes, of these attitudes, are other countries uh, following, you know, these sort of three attitudes? And if, if countries like the US are going backwards, you know, what can we do about it? Can we, can we solve that? You know, is that a problem? Can we solve it? I think it's too early to say that we are going backwards. Clearly, there are within the United States, there has always been sort of an anti-intellectual uh, tradition. Um, we are the only uh, country in the world, as far as I know, that has a creationist museum. Um, so there's always been a, a minority of people who have resisted change some of them for religious reasons i think that you know that this they are in favor of a literalist interpretation of the bible um, there also is a very different uh, i think anti-progress movement which is also to some extent religious in nature but a different kind of religion that's, that's extreme environmentalists who basically think growth is bad because we're destroying nature and we are, you know, we're playing God and you know, we'll do unspeakable things to the planet. Now, these are two powerful groups, but they're not they're obviously coming from very different directions. And in between, there's a bunch of people like me who basically say, look, um, you know, without progress, without new knowledge, um, eventually we will stagnate and, um, and uh, we won't be able to cope with the challenges ahead of us. Um, and so, I, you know, it, it's 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 a political struggle for the hearts of minds of uh, the American people. But here is a thought I want to plant into your head, Juan, and that is that if we're looking, at, we're still looking at a highly diverse and splintered world. Okay, I mean we have you know. 180 countries, you know, you can organize them in four or five major blocks, you know, in North America and EU and China. But these blocks are separate, right? They're competing with each other. And here's the problem. The problem is that if you may not like progress, you may think it's a bad idea and I really like to stop it. But if the, these other people adopt it, then the notion is we really can't afford to not do this because otherwise they will. So, you know, if there's a set of technologies that, you, that are ruled out by your society for some ideological reason, what will happen is it will get this developed somewhere else. Uh, the best example I can give you um, is the resistance that you see in Europe uh, to genetically modified organisms. Okay? So this is, this is a, a really, I think of this as a reactionary and largely irrational movement uh, driven by farmers trying to protect their turf, but also by well-meaning but misguided 
environmental ideologues who basically, you know, think in terms of frankenfoods and other sort of silly concepts. But the problem that Europeans will be facing is that if they don't do it, we'll do it. And if we'll stop it, you know, somebody in the Caribbean will do it, or the Chinese will, or, you know, in the middle, somebody will do it. And if somebody does it and they acquire major advantage on us, okay, that will prompt us to uh, adopt it simply because otherwise we'll fall behind. We have seen this happen in history. We have seen nations that, that objected to, to progress and... Um, even, you know, eventually they would have to catch up because the rest of the world was moving ahead. You know, the, the best example that history provides us is that Japan closed itself off virtually, and not entirely, but virtually from the rest of the world uh, in 1600. And then in the middle of the 19th century, so 250 years later, all of a sudden these American ships show up, right? Admiral Perry shows up and, they, and the Japanese are looking at this. Look at what these... Westerners have achieved. And then they junk their whole sort of resistance to technology and they become big innovators because they realize otherwise uh, they will be eaten up by the, by the Westerners. In some ways, the Chinese underwent through the same process also. But fortunately for them, it took them a lot more time and a lot more effort. But essentially, this is the way history is. So as long as the world remains politically competitive, I don't think the United States or anybody else can afford to fall behind. And so in that regard, I think progressive um, uh, ideology will remain dominant, even though there are powerful forces massed against it, you know, an anti-science, anti-intellectual forces um, are, are, are all of, not just here, but, 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 but everywhere. But they will, I think, lose out for that reason. Okay, uh, Vital asks, um, our education system uh, seems to emphasize factual learning. Do you think that might be um, reducing creativity and thus slowing down progress? No, I, I don't think that a supply of creativity is our problem. As, as I said, um, for progress to occur, we don't need to have 100% of the population to be creative. We don't need, you know, 90% of the population to be creative. Most people are not, let's face it, most people are not that creative in the sense that they're capable of pushing the envelope in science, in mathematics, in, 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 in medicine, in whatever. That, that, that's not the way it works. We have enough incentives in place to encourage creativity among the sort of top people who go to and, and they, what really counts here is that we have in the United States developed a set of institutions mostly uh, sort of top rated universities in where where we are create where we create a great deal of innovation by attracting the absolute best and brightest, not just of the United States, by the way, but of the rest of the world. So as long as we will keep having institutions such as Caltech and MIT and Carnegie Mellon and Northwestern and places like that, uh, uh, I think creativity is not going to be the problem. What we do and what we still have is a system that rewards creativity. Um, uh, and that is, that, I mean, you, you, you become a successful creative science, okay? You become a celebrity. You win a Nobel Prize. You get, you know, 
all kinds of goodies. That, that will, you know, that will get creativity out of people. The problem is not that we have too little creativity. Some ways we have uh, uh, too much. I just heard this morning on National Public Radio, somebody pointed out that since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, 6,000 papers have been published on the subject of COVID. I mean, we're not, we're not looking for people you know, to, 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 to be creative. We, we have to say, our big task will be to separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, there's a lot of good creativity, but there's much more bogus creativity. And so, no, I, just, I think, I, I mean, my complaint about, I have many complaints about the American educational system. I'm not worried about creativity being in, in uh, short supply. People will be creative as long as the environment allows it and as long as the incentives are there and as long as they have, you know, the time to be creative, which we do. So, I, no, I think, I think we're, we're fine in that, in that regard. Um, now, is our educational system perfect? My God, no. But don't get me going on this because I, I can speak there both as an educator and as a father. And I have many complaints about the American educational system. But, you know, it still has been delivering for us. And so, you know, words and all, I say, that's not where my main, that's not what keeps me up at night. All right. Let's see if we can get in uh, maybe one more question. So, uh uh, Binyamin asks, um, so you mentioned we have 3% of the people who are sort of the, you know, the innovators maybe dragging along the other 97. Um, could we, could we have more than 3% if we had, uh, open borders in terms of immigration and, and brought in more people? Ah, oh, my favorite topic. Man, this is true. I mean, if you look at the numbers, you look at the number of people foreign born in top universities in the United States, but not just, but also in unicorn companies, you know, they are full of people born outside the United States. We have been attracting these people for years and we are attracting the best and the brightest from india from china from israel from europe they're all over you look at the i mean even in my own profession in economics you know which is not really a a, a uh, an engineering sort of science and engineering type of type of of, of profession you know half the department in maine where that i am now more than half two-thirds of the department are people born outside the united states i mean this is this is always been our strength is attracting the best and the brightest any policy that discourages this uh, uh, is utterly insane um, much of the greatness of american technology i mean i used to have a colleague who pointed out he says you know the best thing that ever happened to american higher education was adolf hitler because he ch chased out all the sort of top Jewish professors, many of whom ended up in the United States. And they started, you know, physics and chemistry departments, medical schools, and so on. Um, these people had been trained in Germany, but they had to leave. So they came here. You know, we should have welcomed them, been welcoming them more, but we still brought in people like Einstein and Bethe and so on and so forth and found a place for them. We, that is a policy, you know, that I really hope we keep uh, engaging in because it's been, the United States has been a huge beneficiary of attracting the best and the brightest from the, from the rest of the world. And cutting that off is just lunatic. 
Thanks All for right. that question, by the way. This is a, something I feel quite strongly about. I, I, I agree. I agree. And we're not doing well on that score today. We are certainly um, not doing well. <laughs> yeah. We're at the uh, bottom of the hour, so we're going to have to end it here. Unfortunately, this has been great, and I wish we could go on and ask you lots more questions. If people want to um, uh, learn more about your work or follow your work, uh, what's the best way for them to, to get more from you? Oh, you can go to my website. I have a website. You just go into the Northwestern Economics Department and you you click on my name and you should get to my website. Um, there's a fair number of, of papers in there that you can see. I mean, the papers tend to be probably, most of them tend to be probably a bit technical, lots of numbers, lots of estimations, things like that. But I have a couple of small things that people may find may find interesting, including my reflections on the you know on the current COVID crisis. So if you're interested in that, actually, best thing you should do is just fire off an email. Um, my email address is, is is on that website, and I'll be glad to send you some stuff. Wonderful. Well, Please. thank you, thank you so much, and uh, have a, a great day. And I think we all uh, we my all enjoy pleasure. And please, please, everybody, stay safe. Yes, absolutely, and you too. All right. Bye bye. Take care. Thank you very much, Doctor. Bye bye. All right. So long, everybody.